This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In today's episode, I talk the ethics of environmental technologies and specifically the ethics of clean energy and battery-powered transportation with Dr. John Cooley, the founder and chief of products and innovation at Nanoramic Laboratories, a company working to accelerate the adoption and universality of battery-powered transportation. Dr. Cooley holds five technical degrees from MIT, including a PhD from the Electrical Engineering Department. At MIT, he won both the David Adler Memorial Thesis Prize and the Morris Joseph Levin Award for his thesis work, and was a Martin Family Fellow in 2009. Dr. Cooley has been issued several patents, including four for his thesis work. He has presented and published papers in the areas of power converter control and modeling, linearized circuit analysis, capacitive sensing, building energy management, and in education. His interests lie in energy-related problems of scale and the way in which we can impact these areas with technology and policy. Hi, John. Hi, Deb. How are you? I'm well. So, John, um, I was looking at Nanoramic's website in preparation for this interview, and one of the things that jumped out at me was the formidable board of advisors that you've convened for the company. Just name the three that I saw that jumped out at me. Richard Wagoner, who's the former chairman and CEO of General Motors. Larry D. Burns, the former vice president of research and development for GM. And Bram Schott, the former chairman and CEO of Audi. So to me, this actually tells a really interesting story about how car companies, companies that are responsible for some of the most significant contributions to our current climate crisis, are kind of seeing the writing on the wall that the future is not fossil fuels. What do you think changed and when to the point that these major leaders in the fossil fuel forward industry are now advising a company whose overt intention is developing a technology to replace that structure upon which their products were built? It's a great question. And I think there's a, a lot to that. And, and I think, you know, in a, in a way, I would say, I first of all, I call this sort of the electric vehicle renaissance. It sort of started in 2017, 2018, and it's taken off. The most obvious trigger for this was Tesla entering the market and showing that they're going to disrupt what is an established or auto market. But there's a lot more to it than that. For one thing, these are all human beings and the data is pretty irrefutable that we have a global emergency, right? That we need to be working on immediately. So in a, in a lot of ways, I think what we've seen is that there's just been a lot of societal pressure to, to make this change from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. From a, from a business standpoint, if you're an automaker, there's a, just a lot less friction, I think, in starting to sell and market an, an, a vehicle that doesn't have this sort of stigma and downsides environmentally that the existing technology does. And so I, I think they're just seeing that sort of track. There's sort of the, the wheels have been greased in that direction. There, you know, there are other factors here. I think there are tipping points in business where you really have to decide that you're, you're committed to one path or the other. I've heard a statistic in the past that once a market share for a, the market share for a new technology reaches something like 11%, that that's the tipping point where the industry sort of falls over to, to the new technology. If we look at the global EV 
sales in the last years, in the last couple of years, we expect to be there this year. Um, so that's a very significant milestone that I don't know is really talked about a lot. But kind of going back to the societal pressure, what's interesting to, to look at is that that societal pressure has been really a lot more prevalent in, in the European market. You're seeing European automakers commit, I would say, more aggressively to the transition to electric vehicles. And then you're kind of seeing, you know, if you look at different geographies, I would say in China, there is a lot of movement in this direction. And there's a lot of uptake for electric vehicles, both for sort of passenger automotive and also just micromobility. I, you know, I think it's a little harder to, to understand exactly what the pressures are there. But for one thing, there's a ton of just pollution concerns um, in the cities in the cities there. In the U.S. auto market, I, I would say that kind of compared to the European auto market, we're more conservative. And if you look at market share progression, we're kind of a year behind the European auto market. But overall, this flywheel has spun. I think that there's a lot of reason to be optimistic for at least the electric vehicle transition, if not, you know, our efforts to combat climate change at large. This flywheel has spun, like I said. It, it's going to happen if you, if you sort of put yourself in the shoes of, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of an automaker who is currently manufacturing internal combustion engine uh, vehicles, and you think about how careful of a business that is to develop those vehicles year over year, to produce them, to produce high quality vehicles, to make them safe, and then to make sort of the narrow margins that they do. And then you consider, you know, what if I then told you that you have to not only do that for internal combustion engines, but now you have to do that for a completely distinct technology platform. You, you kind of start to understand that there's really no reality where in the long run, both of these technologies exist together. There's going to be a transition, and I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than everybody thinks, that the automakers sort of flip over to electric vehicles. I think that's coming very fast. The other thing that is going to influence that trigger in the, in the very near term, I believe, is the availability of electric pickup trucks. And the reason for that is partly because pickup trucks are such a major factor in the U.S. auto market, but they also just represent a vehicle that's practical in different ways from sort of just a passenger car. And they also represent a vehicle that sort of cuts across different demographics, especially in the U.S. And what you're going to see is that the, the folks who buy pickup trucks are going to immediately appreciate all of the advantages that they have over internal combustion engine pickup trucks. Um, those are performance, sort of raw performance, acceleration, power, to towing capability, those kinds of things, but also ancillary features like uh, the ability to power your home in, in a power outage, the ability to power tools and things that you can plug into the, into the truck bed. And then additionally, and this applies really to all electric vehicles. They're just simpler than internal combustion engines. If you look under your under your car today, it's a spaghetti of plumbing and electrical and transmission and cabling that it's sort of a miracle that it works. If you look at an electric vehicle, you essentially have two or four electric motors that we understand very well and a battery pack. And it's just, you know, you're not going to have oil changes. You're not going to have transmissions that fail you're not going to have a lot of the usual maintenance headaches that you have with internal combustion engines. So there's just a lot going for it. It makes a lot of sense. Technically speaking, it makes a lot of sense from a societal 
standpoint when we're looking at the data that we have in front of us on climate change and the impact that carbon dioxide emissions have on that. And it makes a lot of sense that businesses are going to have to choose one and they're and they're likely to choose electric electric drivetrains very soon. I wanted to ask you a question about what made you choose to go into kind of electric vehicle and electric battery design, because you started your doctorate, if I understand correctly, in electrical engineering at MIT in the early 2000s and finished in 2011. We actually overlapped in terms of our graduate studies careers. As somebody who was in graduate school, on the other side of things in the humanities, I remember that moment. I remember that time. And in particular, I remember the first course that I took on environmental thinking. It was a course called Ecocriticism. And I remember that at the time, students in the seminar with me, people people who really cared very deeply about social justice, human rights, ethics, didn't really think that much, didn't think that highly of the course. I think one direct quote from a student in that seminar was, let's think about people first. I say this because there was a time right around that 2009-2011 point where I think the consciousness really started to shift in terms of thinking very seriously across disciplines in the academy about the need for thinking about the environment and changing the way that we thought about, interacted with, and built human society that impacted the planet. What were you seeing at that time that led you to want to think about the area of research and industry that intersected with climate change. So to sort of back up, it's it's a little bit of an interesting backstory. I had started at MIT in 2001 as an undergrad. I was a dual, a dual major in physics and double E. I actually started as physics and, and then added double E on because when I went to look for research opportunities as an undergraduate, I found that all the professors that I ended up contacting were physics professors who were doing electrical engineering that was hands-on work. And ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated by building systems that did something practical. I think it's really cool that you can put together a, a collection of electrical components and, and have it do something that, that you want it to do. I've always been just tickled by that. So I, I finished an under, two undergraduate degrees at MIT, and then I went into grad school there in the electrical engineering department. And I spent about six years in grad school doing master's degrees and a PhD on really just building and studying electronic systems and eventually started to focus on power electronic systems. It's kind of an, an interesting discipline within electrical engineering because it, it's really just the hardware that interfaces different sources and loads of, of power. I would say it's, it's not a lot of electrical engineering students even get exposed to this discipline in, in, in a lot of situations. And but it, it ends up being something that is very important for all of these kinds of energy technologies and all the practical applications that support uh, changes in at least drivetrain and grid, grid power sort of um, transitions that we need to make to support climate change uh, and the reduction of CO2 emissions. And so I found that there was a pretty cool kind of technical segue from what I was fascinated by into a problem that was becoming very apparent to, to all of us. Now, I'm an engineer, and so I was never really hard to convince when it came to, you know, climate change is a problem, CO2 emissions are the source. You look at the data, it's very clear. That was never something that I had trouble understanding. And so for me, it was very straightforward that this is a problem we should all be working on. Again, we're all human beings, right? And so a lot of us really want to think that you know what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is going to have an impact on a problem 
that matters to everybody or a large or a large population. And I, you know, I think, you know, we can go into the usual kind of cliches about this, but I would like to think that what I'm focused on is is really solving a meaningful problem. So it was it was a it was sort of a logical progression for me to start to look at how I could use some electrical engineering and the thinking that went into my education around electrical engineering to solve these kinds of problems or help solve these kinds of problems. There was also a moment in grad school when I had been kind of tooling away at circuits and systems and circuit analysis and simulation for for quite some time and I and I you know like a lot of us do I got a little restless and started to think about how could I apply myself more broadly in this kind of context I took a business class at MIT in the Sloan School it's called Energy Ventures I I also read a book I don't know if you've read Paul Farmer's book Mountains Beyond Mountains it is a really really cool inspiring story about a guy who's really an entrepreneur but it's like this pure entrepreneurialism where he just he is kind of exploring within his discipline which is medicine and he's traveling abroad and he's sort of doing these things out of necessity he sees a problem that he just wants to fix and he sets up a clinic in Haiti that becomes the beginning of a global network of medical facilities for underdeveloped regions and it's just an amazing story and when i read that book and i still have it on my bookshelf it made me really want to be sort of the paul farmer of energy storage technology i don't know that that's really come to be exactly but it 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 was a moment for me that kind of inspired me to go from just being a circuits guy to being more of an entrepreneur and then in 2008 i was in the basement of mit where our lab was and i had some lab mates there and one of them was a material scientist working in the double e department so he was technically in my department but really look, working on you know nanomaterials and and I was working on circuits and this and the and coming out of the recession the department of energy had a lot of funding for clean tech at the time and there was a funding opportunity that we applied for out of the basement of of MIT so we wrote this proposal out of the basement of MIT and it was a five and a half million dollar grant to develop advanced energy storage technology for clean tech applications and we won that and that's really what got the company started and what what was interesting about that is there was an interesting progression from sort of writing that proposal in the basement of MIT winning it and then sort of identifying that you know those clean tech markets don't quite exist yet as a small company you can't penetrate very large low margin businesses anyway or industries anyway. So we we went from there to sort of an, an alpha market, which was the opposite. It was oil and gas drilling. So we, we actually started as a clean tech company or aspirations to be a clean tech company. We started kind of in, in, in the opposite direction. We commercialized energy storage to specifically work for oil and gas drilling applications. And so I quick, pretty quickly found myself deploying our technology on oil rig floors personally in the middle of the desert and sort of learning a lot about product development and also learning about sort of where I wanted to go as a, as a technologist. And then ultimately the sort of narrative arc that we started on, which was to build a clean tech company came to be when we culminated a number of our first products like those in oil and gas and also aerospace and defense. And we were able to finally develop technology that was really well positioned for lithium ion batteries and electric vehicles as that 
market was was becoming real in 2017 and 2018. And so, you know, there's a there's a long progression there. And I think that today we find ourselves in a great spot to really make a big impact on the adoption of electric vehicles. Was there an environmental ethic that was at the core for you? Were you thinking about or did you care about environmental ethics from another place? Or was this just kind of a space in the market where you felt like you had a technology that could intervene? And the ethics kind of was a side project that this neatly fit into. I guess I didn't come at it from I need to make an impact in an environmentally ethical way, but that I saw an environmental crisis that we could impact and that that seemed very worthwhile for a uh, sort of a place to spend my career. I think that what we're trying to do is address the problem that we have, which is that we need to leave this planet in a better spot than, than where, where we found it. That's really what what our day to day work is is focused on. Well, I know that there's a lot of people working on this problem. Um, you mentioned Tesla earlier. I think that that's probably the greatest example of somebody really uh, kind of making moves and making waves in in the market in terms of bringing this technology to the public on the large scale. What's wrong with the state of battery energy as it currently is? I mean, people seem to like their Teslas, which currently run on lithium ion batteries. It seem to work fairly fine, except for some ethically problematic issues and, you know, the occasional car that bursts into flames. Um, but, but in general, this is a product that seems to be selling well and seems to be doing uh, fairly well on its own. What does your technology add or correct or improve? Yeah. So the way, I, you know, the way we can kind of think of it is that we've, the industry has a proof of concept for a product that can change the way that uh, we build vehicles. But there are definitely some areas that are kind of straightforward in terms of we need to improve, we need to make improvements. And then there are areas that are a little more nuanced that, you know, I think in a forward looking way, we can kind of get ahead of in terms of, of sort of planning for the future. So the, the straightforward aspects of of, of this are we need to continue to reduce costs because to the extent that you know electric vehicle adoption isn't hasn't completely taken hold there's a lot of just market share that corresponds to folks who just aren't ready to who aren't able to afford electric vehicles and so we need to continue to, to reduce the cost of especially the batteries the batteries are really the dominant cost driver for these vehicles and if we can bring the cost down we get better better adoption and we get uh, better access to electric vehicles across income levels, across geographies, across demographics. So that's that's kind of almost an obvious one. I would say that there are there are performance and also supply chain aspects that we want to address as well. So from a performance standpoint, you know, I think that there are certain places where it's going to be a little harder to fully adopt electric vehicles unless we can address the, some of the drawbacks. For instance, in the Midwest and the North, um, in the winter, it, it, you lose a lot of range for electric vehicles with the current battery technologies. And from just a practical standpoint, it's going to be harder for get, to get everybody to commit to that uh, if they lose 50% of their range in the winter in, in Michigan, for instance. So there is some sort of chemistry and science things that we need to improve. And then from a supply chain standpoint, there are ethical things that we, we would like to, to address. And most notably today, the sort of leading chemistry draws materials from so the, the leading chemistry today is called NMC, so nickel, manganese, cobalt. And so those 
materials come from, first of all, Russia, and secondly, with cobalt, it comes from underdeveloped regions and also in, in, in Africa and places where there are sort of ethical issues that are left unanswered. I think that the industry is starting to focus a lot more on an alternative chemistry called LFP, which is a lithium iron phosphate. And they're doing this because of, partly because of these ethical issues and partly just for supply chain security. So the materials that go into this alternative chemistry are more widely abundant. Even in the U.S., we can source all or most of the materials that we need for an LFP battery. And, uh, and so you're seeing a, a lot of movement towards these sort of alternate chemistries. Our, our technology, is, it's really a platform technology. And by the way, the brand name for our battery technology is Neocarbonics. And what it does is it essentially updates the way that battery electrodes are made, both cathode and anode, the two electrodes inside of a lithium-ion battery. And it does it in a way that it removes the most limiting material from, from those electrodes, and it sort of relaxes the design constraints on the rest of the system. And what that means for some of these issues is that, for one thing, we can reduce costs. Uh, we can reduce costs by increasing the amount of battery capacity that you get out per unit time in the manufacturing process and by eliminating some of the chemicals that are needed to, to manufacture the battery we can reduce the amount of energy that's required to manufacture the battery so we actually reduce energy consumption in the battery manufacturing process by 25 percent and that by the way corresponds to something like a half a million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year of reductions per factory. So that's one way that we can improve. This is really almost like a plot hole in the transition from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles is the amount of energy and CO2 emissions that come out of the battery manufacturing process itself. And so, you know, we think that we have a pretty good, pretty good answer to that problem. The other thing is that for some of these alternative chemistries like LFP, we improve the performance in general for, for batteries and we, we reduce the cost. So to the extent that some of these alternative chemistries that might have trade-offs in performance, we sort of fix that problem in a way um, and we make them more sufficient for electric vehicle applications. And so we take LFP specifically and we increase the energy capacity of that. And we also further reduce the cost. It's, also, it's already a pretty cost-effective technology, but we reduce the cost even further. And so now you have a technology that is sufficient for electric vehicle range and other, other requirements. It has supply chain benefits that have ethics implications, but also supply chain security benefits. And it bodes very well for further widespread adoption of electric vehicles and the acceleration of that process. You know, when lithium ion batteries as an alternative to fossil fuels, particularly for the transportation sector, started to come out, I got really excited about this technology um, because as we have talked about, and as most people who are listening to this probably already acknowledge, fossil fuels are a massive contributor to environmental destruction on a grand level. And as many people, I think, listening to this podcast feel, there is a massive urgency to getting off of the fossil fuel economy. But I guess when I'm thinking about lithium ion batteries and the growth of this technology, I, I find myself at an ethical impasse. As I said, most people concerned about climate change and environmental destruction, most of the listeners of our show, already know and accept that environmental and climate change caused by fossil fuels is an immense and urgent problem. And the need to get off fossil fuels is 
urgent. And I would add to that, coming from my background in human rights, there are reasons beyond the climate crisis caused by fossil fuels that I think add to that kind of urgency, dependence on autocratic, tyrannical, and human rights violating states like Russia or Saudi Arabia for oil supply also enables and abets these human rights violating regimes while compromising our ability to make diplomatic decisions and while you know requiring us to at times have to ethically modify those decisions in order to appease those states so that we can continue to have access to their oil supply. On the other hand, while I feel very strongly about the need to get off fossil fuels for those reasons, lithium ion batteries also come with their own human rights and environmental justice concerns. What I've been reading a lot about lately is how extracting raw materials, mainly lithium and cobalt, requires large quantities of energy and water. And in particular, cobalt, which is an important part of a battery's electrode, it has mainly been located, I think the statistic is something like 70% of it is found in just one country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo or the DRC. Around 90% of the DRC's cobalt comes from its industrial mines. That's 90,000 tons annually. And this work takes place in mines where people earn on average less than $1,200 annually. And when we have this kind of world growing demand for cobalt that has attracted thousands of individuals and small businesses called artisanal miners, um, you see a rise of child labor, unsafe working practices. The mining of cobalt has destroyed neighborhoods, close contact with the metal by workers and people in the region doing the mining has led to women suffering miscarriages, infertility, stillborn births, as well as fetal abnormalities uh, in the children born by women who have had contact with the metal. Plant and animal life in the region has been destroyed. Unscrupulous cobalt traders from China and Europe have come into the region and built precarious mining practices that have resulted in tunnels and mines that collapse, killing workers, creating widespread corruption. And then there's the environmental waste factor of what we do with the batteries themselves, which are non-biodegradable, they're toxic. And when these batteries land up in landfills, they release uh, in environmental contaminants, including toxic, heavy metals like cobalt, manganese, and nickel. Lithium-ion batteries also create uh, underground fires in landfills where they can slowly burn for long periods of time, releasing toxic chemicals from surrounding trash. So again, I'm in full support of ridding our economy of fossil fuels. I guess the question, though, is whether what replaces those fossil fuels and a fossil fuel-based economy should be something that has such severe hazards. How do you think of this kind of double bind on the one hand of wanting to get off fossil fuels by replacing them with this innovative new technology, and on the other hand, grappling with the kind of consequences, perhaps unintended, of the widespread adoption of these new technologies? Yeah, those are the, so it's good that you're drawing this out, right? Because I don't know that there's enough talk about these kinds of issues. I, what I would say is that I think what the industry has done is kind of said, okay, from a technology standpoint, here's an answer to that sort of meets the technical requirements. But pretty quickly, we started to realize that there are other things in the full sort of picture that need to be addressed urgently, right? So you know, we can reduce CO2 emissions substantially in transitioning to electric vehicles. But how do we design the, this life product life cycle, especially for the battery technology, so that we do it in an ethical and a responsible way? And so there's a few kind of leading answers to this. One, on sort of the extraction of lithium, right? There's a lot of work that's being done on recycling uh, lithium-ion batteries. And that really gets into how do you design the battery and then how do you how do you process it at the end of life? 
Um, I would point out that our, our own technology, Neocarbonics, is better for battery recycling than a lot of the other technologies on the market, just because the, the sort of valuable active materials in the battery electrodes are more easily recoverable from, from the electrode at that end of life. So that's something that we're pretty excited about, because if you can recycle lithium-ion batteries, they don't go into the landfill. You don't have to sort of remine that lithium to get to make new batteries. On the supply chain side, and it's it's hard to just sort of describe it that way, but on the sort of the ethical sort of the ethics of where these materials are coming from, you know, this is one of the reasons that we're so excited about lithium iron, iron phosphate because you don't have cobalt and you don't have nickel in the batteries that we're building uh, in that case. And so, if you can sort of enable these LFP or alternate chemistries to work well enough for electric vehicles. It's, it's very intriguing for, you know, both supply chain security in the U.S., but also sort of these ethical questions about where, where these materials are being sourced. You're, you're seeing this a lot in, in the Chinese auto market. You're seeing a focus on sort of ironically lower range electric vehicles because of this exact concern about where the materials come from. Um, and you're definitely seeing it in the U.S. automakers. They are focused on getting getting this sort of what they it's the sort of theme here is like electric vehicles for all. And the the ethics of the supply chain are sort of central to that discussion. So how can we choose a better design that that mitigates these issues? The other thing is like, you know, as you kind of talk through sort of the intertwining of uh, you know different different governments and different autocracies and sort of what the leverage that they have on each other about where they get their energy or where they get their materials. You know, I just, wouldn't it be nice if we could just sort of take that off the, take that off the table. If we could redesign how we power our societies in a way that doesn't give advantages to governments or societies that sort of hold, hold us that, you know, hold us in unfair positions that way. And I, you know, I think electric vehicles and having and addressing supply chain security issues is, is, is an interesting topic, but there are also other broader aspirational things that we can think about there beyond electric vehicles. And that, that would impact climate change as well, but these are things like, how do, we, how do we generate our baseload grid power? Is it from fossil fuels? Is it from wind and, and solar? And then there are other more aspirational technologies. Everybody, every, you know, you'll see in the news, you'll even see in the MIT Tech Review, you'll see news about fusion, fusion reactors, right? And there have been developments lately. There's actually even a Massachusetts-based company that's working on this. But, you know, if, if you could release this constraint, it's interesting to think about how society globally would change if you, if you didn't have these kinds of constraints on not just where the energy is coming from, but the limitation of energy supply in general, right? Let's say we had no limitation on how much energy we could source. How, how would that change equity between countries? How would it enable the, you know, what we consider today to be underdeveloped countries? How would that change the balance? Would, would we be able to accelerate the development of those countries so that everybody would be on a fair playing field? And, and it's just an interesting thing to think about, like beyond electric vehicles, both for climate change, but also for these kinds of equity 
equity questions. So here's another you know, question along those lines, because now I'm curious what you think your role or obligation maybe is in all of this. Before I started the Ethical Technology Initiative that I now head up, I helped to found another organization that's called Tech Stands Up. And that organization was really looking at the role of leaders in the tech industry, people who had amassed not only capital, but an enormous amount of social capital to stand up for vulnerable populations or to take a stand in terms of the ethical trajectories of their products or the ethical genesis of their products. As a leader in the industry, how do you think about your ethical responsibility or your responsibility to ethics in the context of the uh, industry? So we think about it from all these different angles that I just described, and we think, and I, I personally think about it more macroscopically at the same time. What's a, what's an interesting sort of anecdote to think about is. At our core, our business is a product development business. We develop products that we think are going to have a big impact on an industry that we care about, and we look for ways to commercialize that as fast as possible. Uh, we're doing that with lithium-ion batteries. And day to day, you know, if, if you can say to if you if you can say to the staff, here is a different design that's going to have these ethical implications or these implications on society or these implications on a global crisis like climate change um, or you know it's going to address these supply chain inequities that gets people motivated i mean we've i've personally done uh, internal staff meetings presenting the benefits of different lithium-ion battery chemistries on these kinds of equity and you know, climate issues and other issues. And it, it gets people motivated from a technical standpoint to do the work that's needed to develop the technology and get it ready to, to manufacture. I mean, that's pretty cool to see it sort of ground up. We don't, or at least I don't wake up in the morning and think, you know, I have to join this meeting or have that phone call. I think about sort of what am I doing and 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 why? And is it, is, does anything need to change about it based on what I understand about all of these kinds of issues and and how do I identify those different paths forward? So it it, it really is sort of a day to day thought process. And then I also like to kind of sit back and think about, you know, okay, so our business today is really focused on really one discipline within one piece of the puzzle for solving these kinds of macro issues, electric vehicles, the transition to electric vehicles, how can we support that? Financially, how can we make electric vehicles work for everybody? How can we make them affordable? How can we make the manufacturing process less polluting and less energy intensive and therefore reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emissions in that process? But I also recognize that that, you know, if you kind of look at the big sort of rocks in the picture for climate change, transport CO2 emissions is one of the four sort of big rocks. The second one is emissions from the grid, right? And it's um, when you transition to electric vehicles, sort of the second plot hole that I like to talk about sometimes is you're moving those emissions from the vehicles to the grid. And so you really have to think about how fast is the grid transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. The good news is that as much as we talk about in the media about how every global automaker is committed to a full EV transition over the next decade or and so on. Almost quietly in the background, solar and wind have started to also hit that. And I think even have exceeded the, what I consider to be sort of the market share tipping point for 
grid penetration just in the last couple of years. And the reason being that the, the costs have come down, it's actually cheaper to build a solar plus energy storage plant than today in the U.S. than it is to build a new natural gas plant. That's, there's a lot of optimism there. And that, you know, that's kind of half of the picture between, between vehicles and grid. And then there are other seemingly completely disconnected pieces of the picture. One is agriculture, especially methane emissions from livestock. And then, and then, and then the, the last one is heavy industry. And there are sort of chemical processes, especially in cement manufacturing that emit carbon dioxide emissions. And that's on the production of CO2 emissions and, or CO2 effective emissions. Methane is not CO2, but it has a similar effect as a greenhouse gas, and it's actually much more potent. And then there are also, there's also other pieces, you know, so you can, re, you can reduce the sources of emissions, and then you can also improve systems or, or processes for removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And that's a, it's a completely different topic, but also a very interesting one to think about in terms of how we're going to solve solve this problem. I have a question just about the kind of tech ecosystem in Boston. I live in Silicon Valley. We were chatting uh, before we started recording about life in Boston. And I'm interested in what you see as the differences between the tech scene in the Valley versus Boston. This is something that I talk a lot about in my ethical technology class, simply because the infrastructure of Silicon Valley emerged out of very different intellectual property laws and also out of a kind of manifest destiny-based vigilante culture-based economy where you could leave your company on a Monday, go to work at a new company, take your IP with you on a Tuesday. This kind of renegade culture is part of the, I think, move fast and break things ecology that emerges in Silicon Valley. Boston, at least as I recall it, Uh, operated a little bit differently. There was much more of a kind of formal infrastructure. Of course, Silicon Valley has a couple of nice colleges, including Stanford, that graduate a lot of great engineers, but Boston isn't too shabby as well in the cultural and intellectual capital movement with at least two major colleges uh, across one side of the river and a couple of really great colleges on the other side of the river. So there's a lot of really, I think, great intellectual capital, a lot of really invigorating science coming out of Boston, as there is in Silicon Valley. But there seems to be, at least in my view, a, a significant number of cultural differences in how technologies emerge and how people conduct themselves in the kind of technological culture. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What's your thought on the differences between the two cultures, Silicon Valley on the one hand and Boston on the other? And how does that maybe change the kinds of technologies that get built or how they get built? That, yeah, where do I start there? I mean, that is a, yeah, that's a great topic. We could almost talk a whole podcast just about that. I, you know, <laughs> I'll have you back. And I uh, probably come at this from an angle that's really influenced by my, first of all, my upbringing, which is more of an East, which is an East Coast. But when I say that, I really mean Northeast upbringing, familial background, my, especially my dad's side of the family is all engineers. You know, my dad was an electrical engineer. His dad went to MIT as an aerospace engineer. All of his daughters were engineers, engineers or scientists. There's like a real practical sort of Northeast or even like Boston kind of lens to that, at least for for me. And then my mentors and advisors over the course of my education and and then career, similarly, I mean, I had an advisor at MIT who was really a practical guy focused on building things that worked and that helped people. And that has influenced me tremendously. And I 
sort of focus on that every day. So I, I, I might have a, a somewhat, even like, even for like Boston, I might have a somewhat even more biased viewpoint of this. But kind of like in simple terms, you know, I think about, I re- or at least I really want Boston to be, from a technology standpoint, I want it to be an ecosystem that supports hardware product uh, development and, and manufacturing. And so what I mean by that is like we have problems that need to, that can be at least partially addressed by physical systems that we can design and implement and manufacture. And somebody's got to do that. And that's hands-on work and it's hard. And when you build a hardware product, a physical product, it has to work nominally 100% of the time. It can't work half of the time. It can't sort of half work. When you release a product, it has to work and you have to be able to build it over and over again and it has to work every time. And it has to be elegant and practical and cost-effective. And I would like to say that in Boston, I mean, from my standpoint, it's driven by the culture that comes out of MIT. I mean, that really is in a lot of ways sort of what they drill into you at, at MIT. But even just the culture and in, in across the region, I think, kind of supports this, which is like, you know, really being practical and in, in, in industrial in a way and hands on have recently even sort of been a little bit vocal about how the local government can support this. I think that from a financing and investment standpoint, it's a lot easier for investors to support a company that has really no infrastructure needs and the scaling challenges are really just about, you know, getting, you know, exploiting network effects for your software and marketing that and and getting it, getting as many users as possible. When you're scaling a hardware technology, there's a lot more that you have to think about that aren't even just practical, but even safe, you know, safety considerations, ethical considerations about supply chain, ethical considerations about the total life cycle of the product. What happens to it at end of life? Does it go into a landfill or do you recycle it? And, and all these things. And so it's a journey um, to, to, to make a successful company that, that makes hardware products. It's an interesting and challenging journey and it requires a lot of persistence. And I think that that is something that is characterized in the Boston technology ecosystem, but it's not uniform, right? We still have very exciting hardware technology companies in the Bay Area. I mean, for one thing, Tesla has changed the world, right? Uh, the electric vehicle renaissance may never have happened if it wasn't for Tesla. Then on the other hand, in, in, in the Boston area, we have quite a lot of innovation around you know, software technology companies and other, other, kinds, of, other kinds of technology. So it's not uniform, but I, I do think that there is there is a bias in the Boston area to sort of like hands-on, gritty hardware product development and manufacturing that I relate to. I also think that I I think as time goes on, this will evolve. I mean, I think that cult that's sort of rooted in the culture, but it's going to be influenced by sources of capital. It's going to be influenced by education, right? It's really easy. It's a lot easier to hire mechanical engineers and electrical engineers, chemical engineers in the Boston area. This was one of the reasons, you know, we, we just completed a real estate transaction to move our facility. And there was a lot of thinking about uh, that went into where we're going to move our facility. And when you really think about it, and when you take the data, you survey the staff and you look at uh, workforce in different areas, it really matters 
even sort of how close you are to, in our case, how close you are to Boston. I mean, we had options to move just 10 miles further out and it was going to be very difficult to get the, the people that we want, that we needed, not wanted, but needed to be successful. You really kind of see that there, there's a nexus of product development in Boston and the Northeast. There's a nexus of product development in the Bay Area. There's to some extent a nexus in the Austin, Texas area, which is pretty interesting. But outside of that, it, it, it's a challenge to source the right talent. And it's something that if you're running a business or starting a business, you cannot ignore these these problems. I mean, there's there's a couple of different questions that come up. You know, I have a running, I'll call it a debate conversation politely um, with people who tell me that they think the valley is over, that people are dispersing, that now that you can work from home or work from anywhere, people are going to leave the valley en masse, that it just won't maintain the concentration of people um, who have historically come here to work in the tech industry. My argument is that I think that that is not the case, that people will stay in concentrations. Silicon Valley might not be the only concentration, but people will stay in those concentrations. People want to be around the groups and the nexuses of industry and of intellectual exchanges. And more than that, or perhaps equally to that, people will want to you know, be around the, the kind of venture capital that can fund these kinds of projects. I have made the case that many of the connections that happen to develop a company or to fund a company or to, you know, create the partnerships that emerge uh, into a company don't happen over kind of like long calculations. They happen over a almost alchemical, fortuitous coincidence. They happen when somebody walks into a cafe or sits in the same class as somebody else who is thinking about things where people make these kinds of coincidental connections that then end up fostering new ideas and that workers will want to come to those places where the ideas are in circuit and where they're happening and where the not only the jobs and the companies are, but where they can interact with other people who are in that industry in ways that are not always planned or designed. So I think that these spaces are continuing and will continue to maintain their centrality as spaces of industry and spaces of innovation. What's your take? There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you, you know, essentially what it comes down to is if, you know, the, the technology or the innovations that are going to happen are kind of born out of a culture and the culture in a lot of ways is characterized by the problems that we're focused on. Right. And so if we recognize, for instance, climate change is a problem that we need to, to solve. And that is part of the culture in a certain geography, either the Bay Area or, or the Boston area or, or somewhere else. then those kind of fortuitous interactions are going to sort of center circle around the, the problem. And, and you know, uh, I think it, a, a lot of it comes down to sort of just creating that ecosystem that's going to generate the innovations that we need. So it starts with you, you create an ecosystem that can be innovative, that supports things like free flow of information and, and, and ideas that provides the resources and the tools to you know, co actually commercialize a solution. And then you add into that sort of what are the problems that we're focused on? And I think that from my perspective, there are a few problems that we really need to focus on and climate change is, is definitely at the, at the forefront. When I say that the two cultures, the, the examples were the Bay Area and, the, and Boston, 
the sort of cultures are not uniform in the sense that there's a lot of overlap between the two regions. You know, I think that a lot of that is influenced by sort of the global focus on what are these problems that we need to solve? And so how does that influence the conversations that you describe, you know, sort of day-to-day conversations, right? Yeah. And I think part of that too is that these problems are so large and they're so complex that actually it's not just about finding similarly minded people. It's also about finding people who think about these things from a number of different angles so that you can have a kind of robust conversation across the many different areas of implication. So, you know, I think that the paradigm that I draw from when I think about this is actually from the context of MIT. You were at MIT, so you will know that there's a very famous building on MIT's campus, Building 20. At MIT, all of the buildings have uh, numbers rather than names. Building 20 became very famous as a building that was kind of dilapidated. I believe it was built right after the war with not a lot of kind of fancy materials. And as a result of that, they kind of stuck everybody in the building who didn't quite fit in anywhere else. And so what you had were social psychologists next to people studying you know, technology studies, next to people who were interested in social studies. And out of this building, it turns out, came more important innovations and interventions than in any other space on the campus. And the argument behind it has historically been that that kind of cross-disciplinary thinking, that that thinking from about issues from a number of different varieties convened to create this kind of new complexity and innovative and fruitful growth. And I guess I'm thinking about that from the context of trying to intervene into the climate crisis. And in particular, I'm thinking about, well, what goes into creating a company that works on the climate crisis in the context of lithium ion batteries? Do you just have electrical engineers working with you? Or how do you think about kind of the cross fertility of different areas of expertise coming together to try to create the kind of product and the intervention that your company is making? Yeah, that's great. I um, you know, internally we have formalisms around product development and culture and they kind of overlap and we recognize that, you know, one aspect of this is diversity of opinions or just diversity in general. But one thing that we see and that we've always seen is that interacting with the market as much as possible is it really is really where you generate your ideas. You know, so you present an idea, concept, or an actual product prototype to a customer or market, and you get feedback. They have other ideas, and you build that into the product products that you develop. I mean, this is where the the focus, for instance, on alternative chemistries for lithium ion batteries came from. Just talking through. You know, well, here here is a baseline technology. What are your thoughts? And you know, we get feedback from either advisors or from customers that, well, there's a there are ethical supply chain issues that we want to address with a different chemistry. And so that's actually become a product for us. And then internally, you know, I think one thing that we really try to emphasize is total transparency and communication. And I like to say we're like a no BS company. Culturally, I like to think that. There's no pretension in our interactions or sort of just how we work. I like to be very open, and I think that everybody in the company likes to be very open with one another. Or at least we strive for that, for, for that. And we like our communication to be very rapid. And, you know, all those different factors are kind of based on sort of how can you create these, like, these interactions among people. That one of the challenges that we recognized sort of from day zero in the pandemic was Okay, well, we're going to move to, at least for the time being, like a fully remote model, right? And 
immediately we raised the concern that like a lot of our innovations or ideas or advancements or progress, it, it, it happens like by chance you walk by somebody in the hallway, you kind of get motivated or inspired to, to, to discuss something with them and it turns into something else. And we knew immediately that if, if everything falls into like a Zoom meeting that you have to schedule, that, that, that we're going to lose that. And so I think, you know, like a lot of companies, we've tried to combat that with different tools uh, for communication. And also as we've been able to go back into the office, I think that um, it's helped. But we had to look a lot at our culture. How do we communicate and interact? What do we support amongst each other? You know, bad, bad ideas are welcome <laughs> in a way. If you want to say it that way, you're free to fail, fail fast. You know, nothing is off the table. And we try to create ways for people to continue to have these interactions because we know that's where all the good good stuff comes from. I would also point out that some of our products have been developed this way too. Like uh, there was actually a product that we developed that was uh, it was it was in a way it was developed by mistake. It was like this particular energy storage component was produced the wrong way in one particular experiment, and it had this feature that we identified. And, and that became its own its own product. You, you look for that and you try to figure out how can you create more of those opportunities. And a lot of it just does come down to like sort of stepping outside of the bounds of what you're used to. For one thing, our, our technology that we are focused on today is a clean energy technology, a lithium ion battery technology. And it was developed over the course of about a decade experimenting in different disciplines like well, for one thing, energy storage for clean energy applications, but also aerospace and defense and even energy exploration. Uh, we learned a lot. And the technology that we have today would not exist had we not experimented on pushing sort of the bounds of energy storage technology to meet the requirements in those other other industries. So, you know, I think I think, again, there's a lot to that from a business standpoint, like culturally, just practically, how do you work interfacing with the market? and kind of exploring, right? Exploring different industries or exploring different applications. One of the reasons that I was really excited to talk to you is because I feel like the work that you're doing and the broader field of climate tech exemplifies a kind of core ethic of the show, which is that you can do well, i.e. make money, build a successful company and do good. How do you think about the balance between doing well and doing good? Is it hard to balance? Are there trade-offs that you've had to make? Yes, there are definitely trade-offs. I think, you know, what this comes down to, though, is that ultimately there's going to be some element of society that wants to promote a product or technology or an innovation that benefits important problems, right? That And, and, these, and these problems should be important because, quote unquote, you're, you know, solving them would be doing good. And so I think there is like a financial pathway for doing good. Uh, you have to find it and then you have to figure out if you can innovate in a way that aligns with that financial pathway. And we've been able to do that. But for sure, it's easier in a lot of cases to. And in fact, like our alpha market is a very good example of this. We started like a lot of small companies do in their early days in oil and gas drilling, right? It's the opposite market of where we are today. Um, and the reason that a lot of companies start there is because in a, in, a, in a way the money's easy, right? I mean, if you can 
innovate or engineer your way into that requirement space, right? It's a, it's, it's kind of a challenging requirement space because you're two miles under the ground. It's 150 degrees Celsius. It's extremely high shock and vibration. It's space constrained. You can't access it and it's mission critical and all these things. And like, so, but if you can engineer your way into that, like price points are extremely high, manufacturing volumes are low. So you can stand up a manufacturing line pretty quickly and you can make money. And today, you know, we've culminated products and industries like that. And I would say that our clean tech products benefit from the financial revenues from those initial initial markets. But, you know, I think getting into, you know, getting ourselves into position to be able to do this has been at least a decade long process. What advice would you offer to the next generation of humanists and technologists who want to do well and do good? What I would say is persistence is very important. What anybody does in, in building a company is not easy. Um, and you kind of have to get up and start over every day. This is something that you, I personally, I know I learned this at MIT as an undergrad. You kind of have to like get as far as you can each day and then make a plan for the next day. And you're kind of, you kind of always have to get up and sort of start, start over and keep trying to make progress. And I would, if you put the right sort of inputs into that process, you know, building a culture that supports innovation, that aligns with your personal or, you know, personal or ethical goals, creating the tools for that, creating the leadership for that. You know, you get good results, sort of the, you sort of almost like turn the crank and outcome great innovations and ideas and products. And, but it really takes persistence. You can't, you can't give up. You have to, you have to work at it every, every day. One last question. When I used to live in Boston, one of my favorite things to do was to visit the MIT Museum. I understand it's temporarily under reconstruction and it's going to reopen in Kendall Square. So for those listening, check it out when it reopens in Kendall Square. It's worth your time. Aside from some pretty incredible projects and inventions on display, I also recall a great exhibit on all of the MIT senior pranks. A plus for quirky innovation on those. So which MIT senior prank was the best one, the one that best expresses MIT's essence, culture, and ethos, and why? That's a, that's a good question. I can't say that I'm an expert on all of these, but I know, you know, the, the, one of the most famous ones is sort of putting the police car on top of the, the Great Dome. I don't know if it's the best one, but it, I think what it kind of resembles is sort of this uh, intersection between sort of engineering prowess that can almost surprise you and also humor, right? So I, and I, I think this is part of how I work too, is sort of like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. In a lot of ways, like everything that I'm doing either has some subtext of humor or lighthearted heartedness to it. And I think that's really important because no matter who you're talking to, it's a human being and they're trying to do their best and they're trying to contribute. And, you know, I think that if we can kind of take away these elements of pretension and focus on working together and producing results, I think that's noble. Thank you very much, John. Thank you.